0: Thank okay. you. Jeff Tucker, I'm he.
1: I'm he. Where are you? Oh, great! You haven't got your camera working. So Sheldon, so is running this, this. This. Hi, Sheldon.
2: Hey.
1: Hey, Consell is running Hi. this. Contell is running this this hangout, but he doesn't know how to
2: work his camera. Oh, uh, yeah, I uh, I couldn't get the hang I how to get on here. I was at the page, but I didn't see what to click on. But now he sent me something.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he sent it. It's all good, but um, but uh, but he's not actually here, you know. So this is typical of of uh, Kevin Cancel. So he's got us actually on air right now. But um, but he he's he's not alive. <laughs> I am alive. Can you is hear there? me now?
0: Yeah yeah okay. But, but for some you, reason there's a, I know I know there's a video problem. All right, let's say hello to people who are tuning in. This is Stefan Kinsella, Jeffrey Tucker, and Sheldon Richmond on episode two of Liberty Talk. And um, yeah, but but Stefan Stefan is speaking know. as if you're some sort of
1: folded metal bird. <laughs> I uh, I know.
0: I know. Right. Flying on a blue moon. Well, that's probably better than what you could see anyway. Well, no, this is not this is not suitable. This is unsuitable. This is wow. right. uh, hold on. I know I know. This it's like every time we do this, it's a it's a test thing. Life is made.
2: Uh I'm getting a window here that says Open, open Capture,
1: right. I, this is, oh, you
2: got that. This What does is, that yeah. mean? Or turn camera off, which I don't want to do. I want to open right. cap, Capture, I guess. Capture?
1: I don't, I don't know. And this, is I reckon, more, this is more Kinsella stuff. I mean, who put I in charge it. of this? I closed it. Okay.
2: I don't know well, at least saying. I'm not seeing me in the big window. The other day when Stefan and I tested it, I only saw me. Oh. Why do I want to see me in the big window? I should see me only in a small one so I can check yeah. my you know no, here right. once in
1: a while well I think I think next time Sheldon, you and We're I are Stefan? I don't know you and I just should have held a hangout I mean there's no point in, in having this guy allegedly in charge yeah if he's now Jeff, the top help
2: your head's cut the top of your head's cut off shouldn't you like oh. to raise your camera or something yeah, or lower, lower your, your seat
1: hand. yeah but <laughs> okay. okay. a, a minor problem okay. so
0: I'm here but I'm okay let me let me log out and try to get log back in, okay guys? Oh, let me try one more right. time. Well what else can we do? Give me a second.
2: But I stay but I stay put, okay.
0: You stay put. If we have to restart it, I'll restart it, but give me a second. Okay.
2: So, so
1: much for so much for living history right okay so now he's now, there he's, he's yeah. there now now we're on air i mean so now this the podcast oh. has begun people
2: can it be has. watching so oh, i better watch what i say then
1: right it has begun now we all fall silent because we're nervous as, as ron paul says it's happening <laughs> did ron paul actually say that i mean because yeah, well, yeah. the, the video says it okay it's happening well it's not happening but it might that happen at some point. Should okay. I invite people to, to join us or not?
0: I think that'd be a wonderful idea.
1: All right. Well, there's only going to be like 10 people allowed, so.
0: Yeah, and p- others can do Q&A, but at this point, the way this on-air feature works, you can't even circulate the link until you start it because it doesn't exist until you start it. Well,
1: oh, Yeah. I well, I was... I'm going to ask whether or not Stefan if you had like a big agenda, because I wanted to bitch for a second, but it's
0: okay. No, I think I think uh, it's it's okay with Sheldon. Let's introduce Sheldon. and Just say what we're doing. We're doing episode two of our Liberty Talk, and Sheldon is a long friend of both of ours. We'll be talking about IP and other libertarian matters. So I think we should feel free to uh, to bitch or chat about whatever we want, as long as uh, Sheldon gets the time to talk about. What he wants to talk about so go oh, ahead go ahead
2: oh, and you're supposed to tell me what to talk about
0: yeah, I will I will <laughs> <laughs> who's in charge
1: so no I just wanted to tell you that um, one thing I do, Sheldon, is that uh, yeah. at the gym I, I watch uh, Fox News.
2: Why Fox when you ha- could have other, when you, when you do um, have other choices
1: in a weird way <laughs> because it kind of annoys me and it makes me, <laughs> it makes me angry you know so I, and I I, I I like to be sort of agitated I mean, it sort of makes me think. But um, the thing I realized this morning from watching it, because you know this Obamacare is like the biggest disaster probably of modern times, you know, it's <laughs> the last great welfare state program, um, just yeah. a tremendous calamity. I mean, it even surprised me the extent to which it's just, I mean, it turns out like government can't build a website anymore that it can, you know, uh, do anything, right,
2: uh, in the history of the world. Yeah, my fear is that the website is becoming a distraction, though, because well, yeah. distraction, you know, because website sounds like a potentially solvable problem, right, mm. just, okay, they got to work on it, but the real problems are not fixable, right, it's the economics of it, it's yeah. not fixable, so they're distracting us to the website, which sounds like, well, they just need to bring in a good webmaster, and all
1: Right, and, but, but I'm wondering, if, can you make a socialist, sort of a calculation argument, sort of knowledge problem critique of even the fact the government can't put together? Because I mean, after all, it's not just a website. I mean, these days, a web space is an extension of and integrated with reality. I mean, it's, it's not just a delivery system. You know, it really is an extension mm-hmm. of the real world in
2: some ways. Yeah, that's the thing about that. It still hits me as something that you know they'll eventually get that worked out, but that then leaves all the real problems. But I could be wrong about that. Maybe they're more. Yeah,
1: I wonder. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty ambitious undertaking to do this thing. But here's the thing that was bugging me the most about it is that these Fox, these Fox News commentators, were just like reveling in this. Right? They're just like so happy to see this big disaster happening. And the Republicans okay. are obviously going to benefit to some extent from it, and and you know this may discredit the Obama presidency forever. And but much
2: more impressive is what uh, Hannity's been doing, which is I think taking Wall Street Journal numbers and running them under his picture, under you know under the audio, the video, showing each state what the increase is for insurance for a 27-year-old in that state and for a 50-year-old so yeah. they did a sampling of 27 to 50 and it's really high in some places like arkansas for 27 year olds it was like over 100% increase yeah oh, i think yeah, it was yeah. like 70 something for a 50 year old <laughs> and they, and they say 45 out of 50 states have these sizable increases a few don't and you uh, talk that like, seems more effective than the fact that it takes you can't it's hard you to can't log in
1: right and and also you know, i mean the fact that there are fewer people insured uh, like today than there were at this point last year i mean there there are Far more people losing insurance than getting insurance. Under the, I mean, it's like the ultimate. Yeah,
2: that's right. Those numbers are impressive too. How many companies are dropping, dropping it or canceling the existing plan and coming back with a new expensive plan that's not as good or yeah. has stuff you don't want? I mean, why is a single guy need maternity benefits? Right. You know, stuff like I, that.
1: Yeah. It's uh, so. I mean, talk about unintended consequences. I mean, you you wonder if, in, in the scheme of things, is this is this the last great welfare? Um, you know, program that will ever be initiated, you know, <laughs> in the history of the planet, because I mean, this is this is so. I mean, and the failure has been so fast and furious. I mean, it took, you know, like a decade for anybody to notice there was any problem with Social Security or Medicare or something like that. It took like ten minutes for people to figure out this thing is a hoax. But now, here's here's what bothers me, and and it troubled me as I watched. As I watch the Republicans all shot, popping champagne corks, in some ways this has been very good for the Republicans. They don't really have an incentive to fix it, you know. I mean, like the longer the suffering is prolonged, I mean, the 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 worse the program is, the worse it looks yep. for their political opposition. So I wondered if this is kind of like a weird sort of illustration of the perversity of partisan democracy, you know, that that actually, in fact, the Republicans have every reason to to just let this crap yeah. go on for as long as possible. I mean, the longer the, they go on, the better off they are.
2: There are other people saying, and I, Dalmia refers. To, I haven't read the column yet, but in her latest column, I read a summary of it. Uh, she must refer to this, and I think she supports it. She says Republicans could be tweaking, you know, these exchanges to make them right. to deregulate them, make them more market-like. Right. But that, but some Republicans think that would be a big mistake. In other words, let it all crash down. All right. Yeah. So there is some debate going on about that.
1: Yeah, and there's no chance whatsoever that there, anybody's going to be addressing the core of the problem, which is, you know, the, the whole sort of government-mandated third-party uh, system, right, payment system, which, with the roots of which trace trace to World War II, uh, you know, in essence. I mean, right. this isn't. this is a problem although either. ironically,
2: ironically, with the companies uh, dropping insurance or you know demoting their employees to part-time, we're going to end up getting rid of employer employer-based medical that's medical you insurance.
1: <laughs> you know you do wonder sometimes if we're taking the sort of the back door towards a free market. I mean, how, how many doctors are are dropping health care? I mean you know, this yeah. is gonna be a rough transition. Well, but. that's true. We might find our way eventually once we get through this thing towards a, 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 you know, through just sheer sort of breaking bad, you know, uh, on the part of doctors and patients. We might find ourselves with a freer system. Unfortunately, it's going to mostly a a private, a private, uh, a fully private system operating in this sort of gray market is only going to benefit the rich. I mean, this is this is part of the problem yeah. I think you
2: know? well and doctors are taking early retirement I just had a discussion with my doctor the other day yeah. he, he's on the young side but he knows of doctors in my town who have decided to quit he said yeah. you'll be able to make money under Obamacare by running your practice as an assembly line just running people through at the minimum time and he said he doesn't want to do that and uh, and they're not taking any new Medicare patients. And he says, uh, in fact, I heard him. I heard the people in uh, the, you know, the receptionist in his office tell a, a new Medicare, a, a Medicare guy who just moved to the state, say, uh, "Oh no, we're not taking any new Medicare patients, and we don't know anyone in town who is. So you're just going to have to check it out." In other words, they didn't even know through the grapevine who was still willing to take Medicare patients. So what happens when new Medicare people can't find doctors? What's the government going to do then? Start conscripting them or making them? Serve, uh, serve uh, Medicare patients. What are they going to do?
1: I mean, this, it's it's typical the way the government sort of presumes the production side is a fixed, a
2: fixed thing. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah. It was. It's the it's the mill, right? It's the John Stuart Mill error. The problem of production has been solved. We just yeah. now have to solve the the problem of distribution. That's right. I
1: mean, yeah. So so what's the next step? You know, slavery. I do
2: Slavery. You know. I, uh,
1: yeah. That's the only possible.
2: It's a case of Mises' critique, right? They're, they're going to say, oh my gosh, we've been making terrible mistakes all along, we need the free market. Or they're going to say, we're just going to have to force doctors to, to and who wants to go to a doctor that's being forced to treat you? <laughs> hey, what do
1: you think, Sheldon, about this, this critique of Obamacare that emerged, I guess, even you know, two years ago, um, pushed by Randy Barnett, that it's a kind of unprecedented effort on the part of government to force you to pay for a service that you would consume, you know, that, that this is sort of fundamentally un-American yeah. and, and unprecedented because,
2: that, because that was you're actually being commerce. forced, to... right? No, I think that was a good argument. I can't think yeah. of an example, right? That that uh, that in the name of regulating interstate commerce, they were going to force you to buy insurance intrastate because don't forget, you can't buy across state lines. You're not allowed to engage in interstate
1: that's commerce. Very members. weird. That,
2: yes, <laughs> and yet they the... defended it on the basis of interstate commerce.
1: Yeah. So much for for market competition, right? <laughs> we're all it's like feudalism. It's, like it's Okay, effing feudalism is what this
2: is. <laughs> well, and that's so much for logic, because the Supreme Court apparently bought that, right? I mean, yeah, it, but you
1: know, but 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 isn't at the same time, if you broaden it out a little bit, I mean, isn't the state itself a kind of an institution that that you know, sort of, almost by definition, forces you to pay for services? Um, you know, you you. I mean, it's a compulsory institution anyway. Oh well, so sure. Yeah.
2: Right. But it doesn't force you to buy, you know, to go into the quote the market and buy from a private, a nominally private provider. So it is different. But right, no, the state is it's compulsory exchange, right? We take your right. tax money and you'll like whatever we give you. Right, right. So we have to buy the
1: fence <laughs> or whatever they want to call it, and we have yeah. to buy the, we have to buy police to give us tickets and
2: <laughs> right. But there's an I, I don't know maybe it's different enough that there is in a sense it is unprecedented because you didn't have to buy from a private company even though is it truly private it's been totally regulated by the state governments right the insurance companies
1: yeah I guess so that's what makes it different is that you're not having to buy can you think of any other examples in which the state forces us to buy from a private company with there's where there's um I mean. I mean there's a lot of necessities we need. Well there
2: they're, okay, the one thing that the other side used to defend it was you have to buy uh you have to buy auto insurance. Now that's the Barnett true. side's the Barnett side to that, or maybe not Barnett himself, but the others conservatives on that side said, Well that's different because it's a, it's attached to getting a driver's license. You don't have to get a driver's license. Here you have to get medical insurance just for being, right? Just for existing. Yeah, uh, I am not liberal. sure that's not a good libertarian argument. The other but thing e- is though, e- the other thing is though, you don't have to, you only have to buy collision, right? Sorry, you only have to buy liability. You don't have to buy collision. So in other words, that's true. it's it's protection for against harming other people, not for, not protecting yourself.
1: That's
2: You true. do not have to buy collision. But you, you a, don't have to, a you don't have to get insurance to fix your car if it breaks down. It's only so it's different i'm not saying it's a libertarian argument yeah. but it's still different from yeah,
1: right i mean that's slightly no but i agree but but really the the logic behind Obamacare was identical to the idea that you should have to have you know insurance in, in order to be able to, to drive in the roads because um, because otherwise you know there's all sorts of damages that are being being caused that other that third parties have to pick up right so and, that, and that's essentially what's what's wrong with the medical system uh, right now
2: yeah. I now, mean, look. Maybe private. Maybe private road. Of course, the road shouldn't be operated by the government. Maybe maybe private road owners would want you to have liability insurance, and you know, before you went that's through, you know, that. So that's possible. And that doesn't de- justify what the government's doing with with the roads that it controls, but that function could ex- possibly exist in uh, beca- and the property owner is saying, if you want to drive my property, I, I want to make sure, you know, you have liability uh, in case you hit somebody. Right,
1: uh, but But if the strictures become too extreme, then you have not every incentive for for private producers to come up with other ways means right. of transportation for people. And it's, it's I mean, well, that's it's, right. It's, Competition will sort it out, right? Yeah, that's right, right. right. I mean, just like some restaurants, you know, you have to wear a coat and tie, and others you can you know go yeah. dressed like dressed like Stephen Concella, you know
2: or well, or me on the example <laughs> I like to use, if you go, if you go into a supermarket and you take your cart and you start recklessly running at top speed with your cart nearly hitting people i think the manager is probably going to come over to you and say we c- you can't do that here yeah so that's equivalent to a road and a vehicle right right it's the owner of the road saying hey you're being unsafe it's unnecessarily unsafe and stop it you can't come in here if you're going to do that that, so that's fine. That Most sorts of things will happen in the in the market. Well, but competition will sort it out.
1: Right? That's right. It's not going to be arbitrary or egregious or right. anything
2: like it that. It won't right? be arbitrary.
1: Yeah, because uh, it's going to be, you know, over time anyway, calibrated. Risk, the risk is going to be calculated to, to accord with the rules. Uh, and competition,
2: when, it will be tempered by competition, which is the great yeah. temperer.
1: Right. And that's sort of what's, what's lacking completely in the healthcare system. You know, right. um, don't you think... That had we had the U.S. adopted even a moderate reform along the lines that John Goodman had been recommending for the last what 20 years, you know, that that we'd we would be better off than we are uh,
2: today, which is essentially health savings accounts and high deductible. Yeah, insurance, catastrophic insurance, uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. and um, and and get get away from and, and encouraging individuals to buy them rather than than mandating yeah. companies over a certain size to to provide them. I mean, would, well, would that yeah. not have been a good step in the right direction?
2: Well, uh, it certainly would be preferable in the sense there'd been a lot less bureaucratic interference, and uh, the government wouldn't be writing specifications for insurance policies. So yeah, you I could say the, it's preferable yeah. for that. Whether it would whether whether it would have led to. Uh, full free market you know who knows how those things go I'm not convinced that medical marijuana is going to lead to to, uh, to total uh, pro, you know end of prohibition uh, I know some libertarians believe it's a step toward ending prohibition but I'm not so sure of that so it's hard to say whether something is going to be a step it you
1: know, is hard to say what we but, want but, it to you well. know it, it seems to me um, that for, for example that while it may not be too exciting to get behind something like John Goodman's uh, pro, pro, Proposal. It, it's a mistake to oppose those kind of uh, mm-hmm. moderate. Well, I guess the, the you know the left thinks it's an extreme, you know, outrageous free market proposal. But I mean, I, from from our point of view, this is a moderate proposal. But it seems seems like a good thing to at least not oppose that that sort of thing. I mean, there are real victims out there right now. I mean, people are really suffering as a result of this of this idiotic uh, yeah. uh, health health reform.
2: Yeah. Here's what I think is missed because people generally don't understand the competition is a discovery process uh, to use Hayek's uh, thought there. Uh, Okay, they say the big problem is, the Obamacare types will say the big problem is if you're going to insure people who are already sick uh, or high-risk you gotta get young healthy people into the system. Right. So, you know, let's accept the premise for a second. Although I, I don't really regard it as insurance if the person's already sick. That's not insurance. Uh, because there's no risk involved you already know the person's gonna require medical care so there's no right there's no uncertainty about that fact if the person's already sick but, but let's leave that aside if assuming a, a purely free market uh, competitive insurance industry won't it be the inter- in, in the interest of insurance companies to figure out a way to get young healthy people to sign up early and that will be a competitive thing and who knows what they'll discover as a result of that competitive process we we'll, we won't never we'll never know if the government's simply compelling it we'll never find out but companies would have an adva- would have a, an interest in thinking up what benefits can we provide to get young people who are not sick and who may not be sick for a long time to get to start paying premiums early what can we provide them to get that make that attractive uh, competition would yield the answer, or answers, probably multiple answers. But we won't know if the government is just simply mandating it. Right. It could
1: be, it could, could be schemes that you know would be like discounts on on uh, you know tech, discount coupons on t- on textbooks or you know it'd be, it'd be, yeah it could be a whole whole variety of different things. But if you need, if you need them in the system to make it to make it work better, then yeah, there's every reason to.
2: And they have an interest in doing me. it. Yeah. It's not as if we need to convince them they have an interest. It seems to me they'll figure that they know that already. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's the lure of profit. And we would be, I hate the word harness, because that sounds so, that reminds me of slavery. When we say we're going to harness the profit motive. I don't want to harness anybody. Right, right. <laughs> but we're going to. But, but that we're going to let the pure natural motive of the market work in this direction that people will will think is a good thing.
1: Now, what do you what do you make of the of the of the whole? I mean, the the Obama the propaganda really successfully demonized this idea that anybody would be refused uh, any level of co- coverage because of a so-called pre-existing condition, and and that I don't recall anybody really sort of seriously challenging this claim. It's, it's as if it's like a taboo to, to point out.
2: Well, I've written a lot uh, about it, but guess uh, most people wouldn't consider it that serious, but <laughs> uh, I wrote quite a bit about it. In fact, I had a piece in the uh, Christian Science yeah. Monitor, which I posted on Fa- yeah. a couple of years ago, in '09, while it was being debated. So, well, what, 10, is, forget, what is your oh, what is, what is your view that I mean? Insurance? Well, he, well, here's what I here's what I said as a way yeah. to get people thinking about it. Uh, no, first of all, I made this point that if the person's already sick, it's not insurance. Right. It's it's a it's a, it's a hidden welfare scheme, mm-hmm. right? It's done through the insurance company. But but I said this would be more honest, and so I said I wouldn't agree with this, but I'd respect Obama more if he made the following speech. And then I had a speech, and I said uh, I had Obama saying, you know, ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, there are people who cannot get medical insurance because they're already sick, which makes complete sense. We don't, you know, companies don't sell home insurance to a house that's ablaze you don't get fire insurance if your house is already on fire. Dead people can't get life insurance. It makes total sense. These companies are in business to make money. We can't blame them for that. However, it is a shame that there are people who have medical bills now, they already know they're going to have medical bills every year, and can't get insurance. So here's what I propose. Now remember, I said I would respect them. I didn't say I'd agree with this. This would be the more honest way to do it. I'm going to set up a special tax applied to everybody to to fund a program to help people who can't buy health insurance because they're already sick, that would be the honest thing to do. Again, it's not a libertarian thing, and I said I wouldn't agree with it, but it would be honest. You'd have to give them credit for honesty. A new tax on everybody to fund this, and here's the exact purpose. You'd lay it out. Now look at how they've done it. It's buried in in in, insur- in the insurance with the under the guise of insurance, right? So they want to force young people who are who will consume less medical care for a while on average in order to <coughs> in order to pay uh, the medical uh, expenses of people who are already sick or be giving being given quote insurance at the same price that will that well people get it. Well obviously right. that makes no sense. Number one right. it's not insurance. And number two how can it be at the same price as a well person? No. Somebody no, no. you know has expenses versus somebody you know is probably not going to have expenses. How can they be the same price? Right. So they've done it in a dishonest way. So that was right. my point.
1: Yeah. In um, retrospect, it's really obvious that the premiums would have to go up for for virtually everybody. I mean, the 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 cost of this thing would be uh, gargantuan and rising forever. Don't you think? I mean, that's why they're going to have to.
2: That's why they're going to have to control prices, and why we'll be headed to rationing, because they can't do the three things they promised. Expand consumption, which is what insuring the uninsured does, right? right. Um, Bending the cost curve downwards, and being committed to freedom of choice. You can't do all three things. So which one's going to go? Freedom of choice is going to go. That means they're going to start under-reimbursing doctors, and doctors will then cut back. There'll be more waiting time, inferior service. You can't do all three things, and the one that's going to go is freedom of choice, and ultimately it'll be some kind of rationing. And it will be death panels, ironically. You know, the uh, the right and Palin overplayed that, in a way, because the bill doesn't say, right, the Obamacare law doesn't say anything, it doesn't say death panels, although it does set up this panel to control reimbursements. That ultimately would be a death panel. So they should have presented it in a much more nuanced, sophisticated way. Instead, they presented it in a way that was easy for the other side to attack. Say, what are you talking about? You're paranoid. There's nothing about death panels in the bill. And, of course, there was no language about death panels. But that doesn't mean there won't be the equivalent. Right. Well, Did actually, explain it, it?
1: everything so far seems to have actually become worse than even the, 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 the most severe critics uh, predicted, uh, just in, in general. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think anybody would have predicted, and in fact, if you had predicted exactly what's happened, that there would be fewer people insured after the program was started to yeah. be implemented than before, that you know uh, the pr- premiums would be going up for the vast vast number of people. I mean uh, th- th- if you had predicted this, people would have said well that's just that's just crazy propaganda. I mean no that's true. Yeah.
2: Well, Hannity last night was showing uh, he must have shown seven different examples of Obama speaking saying you'll you'll be able to keep your doctor, you'll be able to keep your plan, and on average for a family of four, uh, your expense will drop twenty five hundred dollars
1: right Amazing. so
2: no- those three things are not. <laughs> are not happening.
1: Well, now, here's a, here's another thing, Sheldon, that I that I find very interesting um, about this, is that this is a national program, um, but we live in an international world. So people are free to travel to get health care elsewhere, so we've got a huge boom in medical tourism, so-called, right? So people just, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're well enough to get on a plane, you can, you can get good, some good medical care somewhere. Um, the other thing that's very interesting to me is the growth of um, online pharmacies um, with international connections, you know. And I remember when uh, when the end, when these sort of online pharmacies started going live on the Internet, there was a big effort on the part of the FDA to shut them down, and there was all these takedowns. Do you remember all this? There was a, just yep. hundreds of online pharmacies were taken. But now, um, now there are more than ever, and their service is better. Their prices are cheaper. You can get to them, and now, now, thanks to the free market, we have a currency you can use in them that is mm-hmm. utterly untraceable. I mean, it's possible for any person to uh, almost complete, to, in fact, completely secede from from the uh, pharmaceutical uh, cartel, and therefore from the from the dependence on on the prescription racket and everything. Like yeah. right now. No,
2: that's uh, a, that's a great development. Um, Stefan, we've been dominating with medical talk, but uh, we can talk about other things, too. Please uh,
0: be the guiding well, hand here. That's okay. Yeah, I thought… Um, the visible I thought, hand. I, I did think we should turn at some point to IP. Uh, Jeff and I have long been on this IP issue and long been admirers of yours. You're one of the few people out there that is extremely principled and good on this issue. And because there are so few people that are really good on this issue, principled, propertarian about it, not just utilitarian, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious about your take on the whole IP issue, how you came to it, mm-hmm. when you came yep. to it how you see the origin of the movement, um, how you see its importance uh, compared to other libertarian uh, issues.
2: Uh, I, I, I approach this uh, in this context with some humility in front of the two of you. <laughs> Because uh, both of you have written uh, so so eloquently on this uh, topic, and uh, and Jeff has done so much—not just written, but but in terms of actual action—he's uh, done uh, wonderful things. Uh, but I'm happy to talk about it with you, uh, and I agree with you that I don't think it's uh, fully understood. I think we've made a, he- a lot of headway in the last few years. Amazingly, if you think about it, uh, so more people are aware of this, and I think a lot have come over to our side but my experience with this issue goes back to the uh, to the 80's uh, the mid-80's I don't believe I thought about it much before that Uh, you know I was familiar with with uh, Murray Rothbard's uh, brief writings I read Ayn Rand's essay on it I hadn't given it a lot of thought Uh, and then two people I ran into two people at that time people I knew but I mean I heard started hearing this from them for the first time Fred Smith who up until recently was the President of this, uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, who is now retired. Uh, he started talking about it very principally and very detailed. I'm not sure you know where he was getting it or who was influencing him, but I, this is where I first started hearing it criticized on property grounds. It's the first time I heard the Jefferson quote about the taper, you know, the candle. If I light your candle, we both have lighted candles. And therefore, ideas are like that, unlike physical property. Uh, and then Tom Palmer. Who was approaching it in an even more d- deeply scholarly way? Because he was—he uh, published a couple of articles in the Hamline uh, uh, Law Review, I believe, or at least one of them was there, one somewhere else, where he was going, yeah, you know, even deeper the history of it, where uh, what the origins of uh, patents and copyrights were. So um, this influenced me quite a bit, and and it it very quickly turned me around on it. I mean, I read it and I said. Yeah, this makes sense. It's Almost sort of like when I encountered anarchism for the first time. Yeah, this makes sense. I don't I don't really see an argument against it. You know? um,
1: what year would that would that have been?
2: This would have been uh 90? ninety. Eighty. 80- no, early, 85, 86, 87. I was at IHS at the time, between 85 and the end of 90. I was at IHS, so was Tom Palmer for, for some of that time. And you know, I the, knew Fred I knew The, Fred the Hamline before.
0: article, was, the, the published versions were 89 or 90. Maybe. Well, he was
2: probably working on it, though, gotcha. so it,
0: it, before it was actually published. I, I would be talking
2: to him, because mm-hmm. he and I were actually working in the same place. And uh, both of us were editing. He was the editor, I was the managing editor of the Institute Scholar, a, uh, a publication IH, IHS used to publish. I don't know whether we did it, whether he had somebody do a piece on it, whether he did a piece on it, but but it was in the air, at least in that rarefied air, and I was hearing about it, and it made complete sense to me, and then I read his stuff when it came out, and um, and then, you know, that was my view, and then it went dormant for a while, there wasn't right. a lot of, I wasn't hearing it talked about, being written about, I, I guess I just didn't write about it, you know, and my mind was on other things. Uh, and then it, you know, like I said, it flared up in these last few years, where uh, you and uh, Jeff and uh, you know who else, Roderick and
0: Roderick, and mm-hmm. Roderick
2: Long, and yeah, it, it blossomed again beautifully. And then so it, oh, I know what happened. There was there's one great moment in my view, great moment which you can find on uh, YouTube. Uh, I was at Fee at the time, just a few years ago. Yeah. You'll remember this, and I was at Fee at the time, uh, and there was a uh, at a seminar, one of the summer seminars, but I was on the staff. And so there was an end-of-seminar thing with all the faculty. And they, people would throw questions, totally unrehearsed. And Paul Swick was there Perfect. and I, yeah. Yvonne Pograsik, who, yeah. you know, who were friends of mine. And I had not thought about the issue much li- lately. You're right. It hadn't, no one, I hadn't read anything lately. So, you know, you, you're busy. You know, so I'm thinking of other things. And it wasn't on my mind. So it wasn't fresh, if you know what I mean. Uh, and somebody threw out a question to, I think, either Yvonne or Paul saying, uh, what do you think of this attack on uh, uh, IP? And this would have been, in, you know, I don't know, 2008, 9. So you guys were writing. It was it, it was back in the air. And so Paul gave an anti-IP statement about it. I think it was shortly well, like after he pro, had done something pro, at the Mises pro, Institute. Pro-IP. Pro-IP. Pro uh, pro yeah. uh, and I think, Stefan, I think you and he had some clash just a week or so before at the Mises Institute, if I'm remembering this correctly, he had given some paper or something, and uh, about that, uh, so he spoke, and I and then I remember saying, "Well, I'm gonna have to say something about this. I gotta give an answer." And I was like searching my, you know, my memory banks for, "Okay, what are the arguments?" I hadn't really thought about this lately. It was totally spontaneous, and I think I did pretty good, pretty well under the circumstances.
1: It was amazing. <laughs> there was
2: no rehearsal. <laughs> you're, no, you're good. And, and that that went, I don't know, sort of mini-viral, maybe, in our circles. I mean, apparently it was watched a lot of times, and there was some comment about it, and I, I think, Stefan, I think you posted it. Maybe, Jeff, you probably promoted it again. It was, <laughs> it, was,
1: it was exciting because it was, it was <laughs> you know, I mean, like, you you wouldn't, like, you don't think of fee as being, in those days, anyway, you didn't think about fee as being sort of on the cutting edge of of mm-hmm. a radical, uh, you know, anarchist-oriented thinking, you know, especially on... And if I
2: remember correctly, Larry Reed was... Sitting up there at the time too, as a yeah. you know, as a faculty member, and he wouldn't comment. He wouldn't comment. He, well, wouldn't he, he
1: didn't about. know. I mean, that, he there remained was, silent. <laughs> there, there was it was new in the air for so many people, you know.
2: Yeah, so um, that was fun. And then Yvonne also jumped in, and took the pro IP position, but then later told me that I had the better of the argument.
0: Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's strange to me that it's such a hot potato um, and that it, it, it's become an increasingly obviously important issue that we need to at least talk about.
1: Well that's the thing, I mean, you know, you're talking about having thought through it in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, and I'm not sure if I was even thinking about it at all, but, but, but somehow it was the whole subject sort of was a little bit too abstract. Um, back then, you know, it wasn't until until the file sharing controversies, and then, and then mostly, especially the, you know, the fact that you know, basically the federal government began to use IP as the as the you know the great weapon against you know which was, it was it was wielding against the entire internet, you know. So, so suddenly, the digital age itself came to be threatened. Yeah, so I, I was. What was I was talking to I was talking about oh I gave a lecture to the SFL um, I guess yesterday online I was on property rights and I pointed to this great irony that that the state you know um, you know the, the most of the time you hear government officials and government documents talking about property rights it's 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 IP you know. Uh, you know and, and meanwhile uh, attacking um, attacking property rights in the real world you know right. so it's like it's it's like you know the government's just it's classic you know they want to create property rights where they shouldn't exist while attacking them where they should exist right because you know? one gives
2: them power and one takes away power
1: yeah
2: <laughs> exactly there's a hidden agenda there not so hidden agenda
1: yeah no it's a, it's a fascinating thing they've got they've got it entirely upside down you know, well, my other property.
2: great so I so I did some writing at fee on this articles you know you both know and have seen uh, I were I tried to you know hit particular areas just to answer criticisms, uh, and and so that's what
0: I tried to do. I, I haven't written a big comprehensive thing.
2: Uh, what, Steph, what's what's Stephens your um,
0: yeah? But even your short pieces have been pretty comprehensive in the sense that they're principled and they talk yeah. about patent and copyright and they yeah. they get to the root of the issue, which I think is basically that it's a way of it's a, it's a disguised way of letting the state grant a property right in already existing property rights. Um, yeah. But what is is the response in your your impression? I mean my response, and I think Jeff's has been, we've noticed in the last ten years the IP position has become, number one, more obviously important, and the position has shifted. The default position has shifted, um, at least among left libertarians, Austrian libertarians, anarchist libertarians, tech libertarians. There's a a remnant core of… Utilitarians and Randians, maybe, that fight us on this, but it seems to me like they're in the rear guard now. Oh yeah. Um, I think w- w- what's your response or your experience been in that regard, Sheldon?
2: Uh, I'm not strong. Sure, I have a strong sense of what the default is. I'm glad to hear. i not I'm glad to hear you say what you just said. I guess I, for, I maybe I'm not running over enough people, but I don't have a strong sense of what the default is. Uh, so, so I um. I hope you're right, and I'm I'm glad to hit that you have that impression. Uh, you know, maybe it's true that there's not as, I don't hear as much resistance as I uh, used to hear. Uh, you're right about the Randians. Uh, one of my other uh, shining moments in this whole fight is uh, a couple of years ago at APE, you know, the uh, Association of uh, Private Enterprise uh, Educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed, Lo- my friend Ed Lopez, the economist, <laughs> uh, sort of unbeknown to me set up a debate between me and, is it Adam Rosoff? you know, the Randian... Adam Mossov. Uh, Mossov, sorry, at, uh, at George Mason, the Randian um, uh, uh, law professor, and I did some scouting on him. There is YouTube on him, so I was able to see what he argues, and uh, it was quite an interesting debate. And uh, I thought, uh, people came up to me and uh, and told me, uh, and people I respect, economists as well, who, who said, well, I hadn't thought much about this before. You really made a good argument. Um, uh, so I was pleased with that, and of course, Stefan, uh, you you know of him because I think you and I had exchanges after that debate. Uh, he takes the you know kind of a very hard line about mm-hmm. it. He claims that all property is uh, ultimately intellectual property, right? right? Because there's 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 intelligence behind any action. Therefore, intellectual property must be the root of all property. Yes, uh, and which doesn't quite square with the fact that Rand wrote one little essay on it.
1: <laughs> and so yeah, he didn't place it, it, it at
2: the it, center of her of her system.
1: But don't you think that that uh, are you sure about that, Sheldon? Because I mean, so much of it, like uh, the plot devices and and Atlas and Fountainhead and everything turn on IP like uh, uh, concerns.
2: Well, you're thinking of like the Fountainhead with his uh, his yeah, blowing up the, the building with the design. You know, this is uh, you know, well. The, he, I don't know. There, I guess he could claim because he was dealing with a government agency. He could claim that uh, that he. He put a condition on on the use of this design, and he wouldn't have turned it over if he knew that he didn't. Is that IP? Is that a, is that a, is that an? Uh, involvement I think of you IP? can you
1: can spin it in a way that doesn't involve IP, but just yeah. the, the narrative and the spirit and everything. It's all about the integrity of the of the idea and 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 uh, you know the the, the 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 plausibility of somehow you know, keeping your ideas uh, intact, you know, once they're released, which is is ridiculous. And then, of course, in in Atlas, you've got the whole Reardon metal patent, you know.
2: Yeah, of course, it's the state taking it, right. It's a little bit muddy because of the state. But no, I see see your
0: point. But but it's still interesting that she
2: didn't write very much non That's true.
0: In in Atlas, also, there's the other scene where you have uh, Dagny and Reardon trying to reverse-engineer the motor that Galt left behind. So a central yeah. a central plot element oh, is funny. they're trying to violate you know, the IP rights of John that's Galt. Great. Now it's I suppose
2: good. they could say it's abandoned. Nobody knows who John Galt is. Hence the question.
0: No, only the motor's abandoned, not the idea. You know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> but he could be dead for all we know. And so they're homesteading it.
0: <laughs> okay, so oh, we have an the idea. theory of presumptive abandonment. There's
2: a dissertation in that.
1: <laughs> but you know what? There, there's something more interesting than the fact that libertarians have come around on the IP issue, and that's that IP itself that it seems to be being torn down, and I, uh, you know, systematically through sort of pressure from digital media. Um, I'm intrigued at YouTube's terms of use now. You know, like if you're going to use YouTube, they, they used to just have like three categories. Then there were like seven, and now there's like you know 43 or something. Yeah. Uh, it, it, what it reminds me of. Like, okay, you can remix, but you can't use the original music. You can use new music as long as it's like a you know, uh, you know, new voices, but then it can't be the same arrangement and you can do a parody, but you you know it's gotta be genuinely funny. I mean all these like you know, what it reminds me of is the way that um, laws in the Middle Ages against interest gradually got, you know, sort of to, was, yeah. you know, weakened with ever more exceptions, exceptions, exceptions. Yeah. And at some point, you know, you look at the world like everybody seems to be you know, making interest or charging interest, and we go, oh, phew, the heck with it. You know, and it's it's almost become that way. And um, uh, with with copyright mm-hmm. um, now, Miley Cyrus' new song, you know, she comes out with it, and two hours later, there, are, you know, fifteen uh, 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 remixes and covers and, and parodies. Yeah, you know, which, yeah I which still is, love.
2: I still love Weird Al Yankovic. Don't download this song. I love it. It's yeah. It's a beautifully produced record. I mean, it's really great, and it just said it said it all, almost almost all of it. Uh, but I keep thinking. Later, remind you brought up uh, YouTube because I, I wanted to mention make sure I mentioned this. I've been watching uh, the World Series, and I, I was watching some of the baseball uh, playoffs, and I sort of drifted away from sports and decided to start watching the baseball end of season stuff, and the sports. The professional leagues still say this absurd thing before every game. No description or account of this of this game may be used without the express written consent of Major League Baseball or of the National Football. League. That means I can't tell you the score from last night, which, by the way, was four to two. Uh, Boston <laughs> lost. You're no, sure. I viola- I'm am I gonna you lost. <laughs> Am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get in trouble with uh, Major League Baseball? Well, this is description or accounts. It doesn't just wrong. say you can't record. Record the game on your DVR and sell it, uh, although I don't think it would be a problem with that either. I mean, look, they put this out over the air or over cable, and, you know, I didn't sign anything. But if they just claimed that, I could, you know, at least say, okay, they've narrowed it to I can't take the pictures right. and sell them. But they say, I can't even describe what happened to you. To you, uh, I can't describe what happened, uh, uh, you know, in a phone call
0: to you or face-to-face conversation with you. No, obviously they they wouldn't enforce you, that. You perhaps shouldn't sue them for malpractice because they're giving you bad legal advice because that's actually just factually incorrect. Yeah, like I, I saw a website that called that copy fraud. fraud. No? Yeah, that's called copy yeah. fraud. I understand. They're just People giving are. you bad bad legal advice.
1: But but Stefan, isn't it the case that more and more, uh, to the extent to which IP is actually enforced, really depends upon uh, on on the holder of the of the rights, um, so that you can be sort of more severe, or you can be more liberal. And you know uh, what what results from that is enti- it's entirely up to the so-called owners. Yeah, there's
0: I mean, a lot I, there's a lot of discretion because so you a can, lot of discretion, right? You can you can be a patent troll. You can haul off and file DMCA notices, knowing that there's very little uh, co- negative consequences if you file a DMCA. You know, that's an uh, abused way that you're not supposed to do. On the other hand, people a lot of people are opting out by using Creative Commons licenses, a lot of artists, yep. a lot of software producers. They're just showing that they don't value the system by opting out of it as much as they can. Um, one of the problems with it is that there's no way to opt out legally. Like you can't just refuse to get a, a copyright. The state gives you a copyright no matter what you want, and it's very yes. difficult to get rid of it. I've learned um, that from you. At least they should make, make it opt out, but… Um, one thing I wanted to check with Sheldon on and see if you kind of agree with my and I think Jeff's take on this is that of all the major libertarian issues, and IP I do think has become a major issue, especially since 1995 with the advent of the internet. And as you can see, it's being used you know, as a justification for restrictions on the internet like SOPA, locking people up, uh, restricting commerce, uh, etc., but the one thing about it that's worse than all the others is it's so insidious because it goes under the rubric of property rights.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? The, right. The drug war, you know, most of us understand how bad that is. Taxes, you might agree you have to have some small amount of taxes, but we all kind of agree that taxes is death. The war, we know, is terrible. The central bank, we're skeptical of. None of these things masquerades as a property right. It seems to me that the problem with IP especially patent and copyright is that it's growing worse and worse in the digital age and the the penalties are escalating the enforcement mechanisms are escalating and at the same time libertarians are just discombobulated because it go it, it's it's called a property right I mean you know if we call a welfare right or a social security right a property right libertarians aren't bamboozled by that why are they so bamboozled by this yeah. this this labeling trick
2: Yeah no, that's a that's a very good point. I think it's accurate and it's important. Uh, they wouldn't be they wouldn't fall for the argument that we can't deregulate taxicabs in New York because what about the property right that the uh, you know that the driver has in the medallion and that's going to the value of which is going to plummet to zero the day they deregulate. Mm. No libertarian mm. would fall for that. Mm. Uh, and you know if we go back to slavery time, of course the same argument was made, right? Mm. hey, yeah. you yep. you can't Absolutely. take away our property. Uh, at least pay us, you know. So some some people wanted to pay the slave owners, not the slave, uh, not the slaves. Um, so you're right; it's very seductive in a way that those other cases aren't for libertarians because they first of all they were brought up thinking uh, that it just it stems from self ownership and, and, and rights. So if you thought of an idea,
0: it's your idea. It's and, like these uh, Tea Party guys; they say, uh, "Tell the government to keep their cotton picking hands off my Social Security payments." Yes, yeah. right. Like what?
2: <laughs> so it makes our job tougher because we don't start out with all the libertarians in our camp. That's that's what, maybe what you're getting at. It makes our job tougher for explaining it to non-libertarians because we don't even have all the libertarians in our camp, and they 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 they, they assume they assume and they've absorbed that it is property, an idea is property, just like any physical property, and therefore you, we have the burden of showing that the of the difference. And you know we've been. You know, thanks to the two of you, and I think I have played my part a little bit, but others. Uh, we've been pretty good at that, and to the point where you seem to think that the default position these days is anti-life. I, anti- I think IT. it's,
0: it's becoming that way. Uh, or I gave a talk last night at Liberty on the Rocks, and I think the crowd was kind of mixed, but I yeah. didn't get I didn't get booed and outrage from people. I I got questions about it at least. Um, yeah. um, no, you, mentioned, you mentioned you uh, mentioned. Uh, I think. Palmer and Konkin, uh, let me know if, if you think I'm missing anyone. Um, my estimate of the sort of evolution of these ideas was the, the the earliest and the greatest and the clearest thinker on this was Benjamin Tucker. It's just amazing how good he was on this compared to Spooner, his mentor, right? right. And then the, the next really solid thinker was Konkin, and then it was Wendy Wendy McElroy. So it was basically Tucker, Konkin, McElroy. Yeah. Then Tom Palmer picked it up, although… To be honest, in later years, he seems to have dropped it a little bit. He doesn't emphasize it, and he he's had some comments in the inter- intervening years, almost retreating to a utilitarian view, saying maybe pharmaceutical patents would be okay in some cases. I agree.
2: On my blog, in fact, some years ago, uh, he uh, left a comment uh, on something I'd either linked to or or written about about all this, and and seemed to imply there was a or say outright that there was a. He could think of a, a, an exception for pharmaceutical, something that ha- had very high, right. you know, research and development upfront well, costs or something like yeah, that, but, which but, you know, Baldwin, really unpre- It didn't seem yeah. I, I didn't understand how he was justifying. Well, but Bolden
1: Bald- and but Levine make that same exception, but but they do. But they're
0: they're empiric- Well,
1: yeah.
2: It's kind of weak though because they have a whole chapter about thriving uh, industry for ph- pharmaceutical industries like Italy's. In the absence of copyright, I mean, I think that's a very important book for us. I realize it's it's utilitarian, no, it's no, pure but yeah, economics, yeah. but yeah, it's a good bu- it's a good book. Those are good, good they're good guys.
1: But Stephanie, you shouldn't you shouldn't just uh, brush it off their point that like like that because what they point out is that the FDA requires this sort of disc- disclosures mm-hmm. of of the formulas, you know, for you know whatever six years. So. You completely lose your first mover advantage in, in yes. those, in those oh. cases. Yes. And, no, no, and no, so, in other words, you can't. Re- and they speculate. So long as you have these mandates with the FDA, you know, just you know, there's no such thing as secrets, you know, at all. There's you completely lose the element of surprise. Uh, that and and markets have one of the cool things about the market is that if you if you do something spectacular in a way that surprises all your competition, you win the game. Right. Yeah, so, no, I agree
0: with their criticism. It's just that their solution is this sort of background looking solution. Maybe instead of patents, we should get rid of them, but we should have a government a subsidy of, of scientific research, and yeah. that would solve them. So that's their sort of Chicago ish. I, I don't know what you want to call right. it, and I don't agree with that, of course. And um, right. I mean, and they're I'm not, not, I'm proper, not they're property. They're much. not property rights guys in the. No. No, but they ethical sense. But I do believe they did become more libertarian in a sense, and more. I think they've told me this, um, or one of them has. They've become more libertarian, more property rights, more anti-IP, For in of sure. course, researching um, mm-hmm. the book. And I, I wanted to point out, you know, in that same one of the same. Um, I think the second article of Palmer's that you mentioned was in the Harvard. Journal of Law and Public Policy, oh, if I'm not mistaken, it? and okay. it was a symposium, and a second article in there was by a, a, a Dutch or a Dutch or Belgian theorist called Baldwin Boukert. I know the name. Sure. And there's, a, there's an article in there it's called, I think, What Property Is or something like that, and it is just absolutely brilliant. At the end, he sort of peters out. He doesn't quite reach – he doesn't quite give you the conclusion, but by the end of it, and actually, I think that's one thing that converted me to the IP case is uh, the anti-IP cause. He just lays out scarcity, the, the legal framework, the historical development of all these legal notions that have led to our current morass. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most powerful uh, things I've read on it. I would actually rank him up there with Tucker and Condon oh. and Wendy.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, is that online?
2: I'd like to go read that.
0: I don't know if I've ever read uh, it. I can send you a link that Good. will be online for you. But yeah, I okay. think there is an online version, so I'll send it to you. It's fantastic. Um, I did want to ask you a kind of a, a slightly tangential question. Have you – you seem to have focused mostly on patent and copyright and what you've written, and so have Jeff and I because it's those are the two biggest issues. Have you thought about much or written much on the trademark issue itself, which is sort of another kind of background type of IP?
2: Uh, a little bit, and I've, I've done some reading on it. I read uh, stuff I'm sure you've read, Frank Van Dunn. Has had some things in uh, Journal of Libertarian Studies. I think actually directed at you and Walter Block. I think in the, on a couple of different issues. It wasn't all, maybe only IP. Uh, there are interesting issues there because then then it then it brings in issues like fraud, for example, right? Uh, doesn't he give the case of the two burger places, Rothbard Burgers mm-hmm. and somebody else's Burgers, and Lock,
0: Lockman Burgers? Yeah, yeah,
2: and and you make your place look exactly like it. Is that just free speech? Is that fraud? There's interesting issues there. And I, I guess I, it I might be overstating things to say I have a settled okay. view on it. I don't. I, I am I I do strive to to separate that from patents and copyrights when I'm talking to people because I think I think there is a difference even if they have some common even they have some overlap because you know another thing that people bring in when you bring this up is plagiarism they immediately leap to plagiarism right so yeah. so it's okay then to take somebody else's work and put your name on it and of course the first thing i say is whether it's okay or not is not, uh, that's a separate uh, you know here's what i'm talking about that's not usually the usual uh, copyright or ip issue that uh, that somebody takes somebody's work it's that they take Ayn rand's work keep Ayn rand's name on it and then Publish their own version right. of it. That's the right. big thing that gets p- people upset. Not plagiarism, but people want to jump right to plagiarism. And plagiarism, as I understand it, is not a criminal offense anywhere. It's something somebody potentially can sue for. And whether that they should be able to—that's a separate question. But it's not—it's not a crime. Am I right about that, Stefan? Is, is plagiarism a crime in the United it's, States? It's, anywhere? It's
0: not anything. It's just an—it's just an act that's socially censured. It's—it's it's, yeah. uh, sometimes it could result in a contract breach, but very rarely, I believe. But can an it, it, uh, it could be can, can an author way.
2: sue it's another author? I've I heard of authors no. suing authors, not just publishing companies suing. An author authors after. can sue
0: authors, but they, the question is, should they be able to, and is it under a fraud theory? And no, yeah. it, uh, it would be under trademark or copyright infringement. Yeah, so I, uh, I think in any private property libertarian order, it's kind of caveat emptor, every customer for himself. And if you really are defrauded by a, a mean bookseller. And you're buying shady books out of the back of a van on in New York for twenty five cents a piece, and you know it looks like Harry Potter, but it's not really by J.K. Rowling. Yep. I suppose you could imagine a situation where you're actually defrauded. I, I tend to think when someone buys a twenty dollar Rolex watch, they know they're getting a fake. <laughs> well, Rolex. that's
1: that's just it, I and mean, and it's a very serious issue. I was just I was just in Rome, which apparently you know like. Two-thirds of the economy of Rome is is entirely based on sort of counterfeit products. I mean, you know, all, you know, all the streets. And when I was in Turkey recently, I was very intrigued to see that they would have, you know, a legitimate Nike store right next door to a pirate Nike store, you know, and, and it was clear because, you know, the pirate products were just a fraction of the price. but And they looked the same, more or less, but everybody kind of knew what was what, and people were going to both places. I mean, it's it's not re, it's not really an issue of fraud. I mean, customers know more or less what's real and what's not. And customers actually always prefer the thing that's real versus the thing that's not real. Uh, there's always a risk. I, I had a very interesting sort of impromptu interview with a high school girl recently where I was talking about a, a like a, a Gucci bag. I said, would you ever buy a fake Gucci bag? And she said, I would never. I said, well, what if it looks exactly the same? I mean, and you can't tell any difference. And you know, she says, well, I still wouldn't do it. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense, but I mean, if they're identical products, she goes, well, they're not really identical, because, like, as, as the fake Gucci bag begins to wear, you know, that it might sort of have certain threads would appear in some ways, and it would wear in a different way from an older, uh, like a real Gucci bag. And she said, the, the social consequences of being found out that you've got a fake are too devastating to take the risk. Mm-hmm.
2: Like, <laughs> Also, you would think a person who's going to buy a Rolex for twenty dollars on the streets of New York was never going to buy a real Rolex for no. whatever a Rolex costs. $5 no, it's, it's, or whatever not, it's it is. not.
0: It's not a lost sale. So it has not
2: deprived Rolex of any money. That's so. There's no. I don't see how they could claim damages. But, but uh, on the trademark issue, Stefan, I'd be interested to hear your your take on this. Uh, you know, the example of the of the Burger Place that copies McDonald's exactly. Maybe it doesn't even cut the price very much. So there's not. Some obvious sign that's not McDonald's. Uh, is there? A, what do you think of
0: trademarks? Is that pure IP I, and therefore needs to go? I, I I've come to believe that trademarks should be totally abolished because the only case that there's a legitimate argument for is when it's basically coincident with fraud, but we already have fraud law, so yeah. it adds nothing except confusion. Yeah. It it adds all these other. It doesn't even have a fraud standard. It's, it's called consumer confusion, which is very vague and is not right. a real consumer confusion. It's a hypothetical one that a judge can decide, uh, and there's anti-dilution, right? and there's the wrong plaintiff. You have the trademark holder suing instead of the defrauded victim, so mm-hmm. I think trademark law has to go. It's, it's, it's used for bullying. It's used for monopolization. Yeah. Um, it's not nearly as… Bad as patent and copyright, yeah. um, but it's I think it's comp- and to, by the way I would say trade secret law has to go as well. You don't need the law to let you keep a secret.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just keep. Well, the that's secret.
1: the other thing. There are there are market means. What is real and what is not? I mean, you can find this by looking at the history of the Coca Cola company. Uh, you know, they immediately had pirate products all over the place, claiming claiming to be Coca Cola. Uh, the you know the turn of the century and and, and after and gradually the coke company you know finally dis- discovered that the way they would uh, signal consumers that they were the real thing which is where that the real thing comes from yeah. um, is by this fancy bottle so they invested massively in very expensive bottling equipment that made the bottle that nobody else could seem to replicate no. and and bottled it that way as a way of sort of sending, sending this market signal that all this takes place without uh, whether copyright law pertained or not, actually it was unenforceable. Yeah. So Coke, it ultimately falls on the burden of the the company itself the you know, companies can't defend on. They depend on ch- ch- trademark law to actually ultimately be, be able to protect their uh, their their products from from piracy. Um, Coca Cola came up with an in a, in a way in a, in a way, innovative way to uh, crush the competition without. You know, uh, having to depend on the state, I, and yeah, where it I, works in the market.
0: I, I kind of think this whole trademark thing is really a non-problem. You, any legitimate competitor to Coca-Cola is going, you know, they're going to want to have their own name, like Pepsi-Cola. They don't want to have the same name. And if you do have the same name, you're going to be seen as shoddy, and you're not going to. Hold on a second. We <laughs> got the dog problem. Um. <laughs> So – but there's one other thing, and Jeff, feel free to bring up other things, but Sheldon, I did want to run one other thing by you and pick your brain on this issue. It's something – some way I I have been thinking about this issue, and I'd like to get your take on it. It's about the reason libertarians are confused about IP. I think Mm. it's got to do with this Lockean notion, this Lockean argument that we trot out, which is overly metaphorical and non-rigorous and imprecise, which is that you own yourself, therefore you own your labor… Therefore, you own whatever you make with your labor. That's basically the argument they use. Yeah. Uh, I think the mistake they make is in saying that you own yourself. I think you own your body, not yourself. Self, to me, is a vague term, um, and you don't own your actions or your labor because that's just what you do with your property. I think the mistake they make is in assuming that the Lockean property theory goes a- is is hooked a- is hooked into the idea of creation. That's it. It's more hooked into the idea of you have a scarce resource in the world, and if it was unowned, then the first person who started using it is has a better claim to it or whoever he transferred it to by contract. Neither one of those mm-hmm. criteria has to do with creation, really. Yeah. And then in the case of your body, you own your body because it's your body, and you have a special connection to it. I mean, I, I'm not getting to the metaphysics here, but I think we can all agree on these fundamental principles. But it seems to me it doesn't leave any room for a third category of… Ownership of things by creation. Creation, to me, is rearranging or transforming already owned resources into a more valuable configuration, and that adds wealth to the world. It makes you more wealthy, but it's not a property issue. It has nothing to do with property. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this okay. sort of Lockean well, one,
2: metaphor. one of my. Uh, and I think I was inspired by you on this point because uh, you're the first person I remember actually discussing the issue in in, in precisely these terms. One of the articles I did at uh, at Fee, which is still online, um, one of my narrow, when I think of a sort of laser beam, you know, going after a real, more precise uh, uh, point within the larger IP issue, was was actually on this very point about about uh, creation. Uh, and I'm trying to now think, it was a few years ago, I'm trying to think exactly what I tried to attribute to the discussion, but it was along the lines of what you're saying here. Uh, you know, we think... I mean, we attach importance to the thought that's behind any action. I mean, we learn yes. from Praxeology and Mises and, and just common sense that action is informed by some intention and some thinking. Yes. So, so you know, it's important in one sense, in one level. At one level, it's very important. And libertarians, uh, you know, being individuals, then carry it over and uh, then apply it in uh, outside of its proper context and think that somehow ownership then comes from the fact that you've given your action some thought before performing it, uh, and you're right. Your point about uh, uh, rearrangement rather than creation is uh, is very good. And I and I've since written a few things. Nothing, like I said, nothing grand and uh, and comprehensive. But I've tried to hit that same point because it's 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 quite important, and people don't think of it that way. It's, it is a rearrangement, and the question is who owned the things that was rearranged. The example I used in my article was the was uh, what was it? Howard Work's evil twin. Right? Who's mm-hmm. the who's the, also a great architect? Who sneaks onto your property one night, and you happen to have a lot of building materials there, and he's got the most brilliant design for a house ever conceived, and he but using all your tools, your land, and your lumber and your you know glass and everything else builds this magnificent house. Uh, now, what do you have a right to do? You, the person who owned all that stuff, uh, do you have a right to smash it if you want, or just you know kick him out and live in it if you want? Hell yes, you do. He doesn't own it just because he thought up the idea. You own the, the, the materials, and he, in an author, unauthorized way, used your materials.
0: So Do he's you know, no by the way, material. that that's, that's actually not the result under the current law? If you, what would happen under the current law? Under the current law, if you, well, if you, if you take someone's property in the example you gave, and if you do it somewhat innocently, it's still wrong, but you do it innocently— yeah. Then you could actually sue the original owner to pay you for the extra value under what's called unjust enrichment. Because yeah. if you if you give him back his property after you've improved it, it would be unjust for him to be enriched by <laughs> the added value that you added.
2: That's, <laughs> that's it's crazy. It's crazy. That you know, that's positive. Well, not only that, not
0: only can you keep the house
2: if you want. You can build copies of it all over the all over the earth, if, if you you know with permission uh, of the property owners. So you could sell the you could sell the design <laughs> if people want to buy it from you, or they can come and look at it and then copy it themselves. But yeah, I
1: mean, do you, are you sure, Stefan, that this whole idea that you own what you create comes from from Locke? I mean, this is a, a cliche. You hear it all the time, and it just turns out to be you know just really obviously
0: untrue. No, I'm not sure where it comes from. To be. It's hard to trace it. I mean even the, even the Lockean labor theory of – well, Masov strangely calls it the Lockean labor theory of property or labor theory of value, and then he tries to contrast it with the Marxian labor theory of value So have to be different. The creation theory of value. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. most 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 philosophers I know they call Locke the locking the value theory labor theory of property and yeah, Marx property. the labor theory of of value. Mossoff mm-hmm. actually calls both the labor theory of value, but tries to distinguish them. I think and, that's and a mistake. It, I, I think there's a relationship between them. I don't think they're the same, but I'm I, I, I do not think sure it's about I mean. value.
2: In Locke, it's not about value. It's about appropriation, original appropriation. So the labor theory of appropriation, and he doesn't. I don't know that he talks about. Uh, creation. I thought he talks about mixing your labor you know with something that was previously un- unowned and
0: that's how you come into
2: ownership. It's not so much
0: you created anything that you just mixed your labor with something that's there. The way I see it I don't blame Locke at all. He was responding to Filmer. He was trying to defend this uh, feudalistic monarchistic type defense. Yeah. He was trying to defend a, a better system compared to that. He also, was he,
1: was, he was mostly against IP actually it turns out anyway.
0: He, he – my understanding is he – Locke – I mean, Adam Mossoff claims that, that Locke believed that his homesteading argument justified IP. Now, my, my first response to that is, so what? It's it's an appeal to authority. But my second response is, I don't think so. Locke did favor copyright, but only as a sort of civil measure, sort of like Jefferson and others did. Uh, he did not apparently believed that it was implied by his natural rights theory, his homesteading theory.
2: It sounds like question-begging um, on Mussel's part
0: because you can, well, you can it's, homestead it's, it's, a it's, piece of land, but homestead, what's it mean to homestead an idea? Well, that's the other thing. I mean, I actually think, not as a normative theorist, but I think it's literally impossible to own a non-scarce resource. You, you just simply cannot, and so all these rights that pretend to grant property rights in non-scarce resources are really –… a dishonest, disguised way of transferring rights and real resources mm. in, a, in another way, mm. which is why, for example, I, I, I'm starting to think that a, a patent or a copyright is really a negative servitude or a negative easement that mm. the government grants that gives the patent holder or the copyright holder a negative easement… In someone else's already owned, already homesteaded, already existing scarce resources, or their money or their body.
2: Right, so That's right. a transfer and, and that, of
0: rights. Right,
2: and the second, the last part is very important because you know I can hear the I can hear a libertarian on the other side come right back and say, "Well, ownership of land isn't going to be easy. you can't walk on my land." I mean, that's the first thing they say, right? But you, but what you added there at
0: the end, not added, but what
2: your complete thought is. It's a negative easement in things that they already legitimately own in a it's lot of It's already owned.
0: It's already homesteaded. It's already owned, and we already know by the Lockean rules who owns it. We already know how to identify the owner, and it's not some third guy who the government grants this veto right. Mm-hmm. And then, then the response you always hear if you put it this way, you're basically cornering them. You're, you're successfully cornering these guys. Their response then is, well, it's true that an IP right is a limitation on how you can use your existing property rights… But all property rights are limited. All property rights are limited by other people's property rights, so there's no problem with that. Now, what kind of argument is that? <laughs> so any limit is legitimate because some limits are sometimes justified. It makes it's just not a good argument. Right,
2: right. Well, Here, time I guess is running short, but I wanted to hear you say a little bit about the following question: How far can you get in the in you know in simulating copyrights through contract, and specifically? Tell me, say a little bit about Rothbard's
0: approach to, to copyright.
2: Uh, I know you've written about that somewhere, but maybe you could
0: say something briefly about that. And I get this question all the time, and it, you, yeah. I, I got it last night in, at the Liberty on the Rocks. You, you don't want to resort to legal concepts like in rem and in personam, but the nature of property is that it's a right good against the world. Like if you own this estate, with this car, you own it no matter what – whether anyone signed a contract mm. with you. It's not a contractual right. It's an in-rim right. It's a right in property. Now, of course, it's a right against other people, but the way we think of it is this right in this piece of property, your exclusive right to use or exclude other people, it is, exists independently of their having agreed to it. Yeah. Right. A contractual right is something that is a special exception to this that you agree to. It's only between the parties to the contract. Hmm. There's really no way to create an in-rem right from an in-personum right. You can't use contracts to construct Hmm. a right that's good against the world. It only affects the parties to the contract, and like I always try to point out, believe me, if if you talk to any advocate of patent or copyright who understands how the system works and you propose to them, I'm not really against IP. I just want to replace it with a contractual system. Believe me, they will flip out and oppose it with backflips because they know they know that it would eviscerate and ruin their the, – they know themselves that you can't simulate uh, the system. Um, and there's other practical problems, I believe. I mean imagine, imagine, Sheldon, you're selling a book, and you sell it on Amazon, and you want to make sure the buyer can't make a copy of it or even loan it to his friends. He can't sell it to a library… I guess he can't sell it to anyone. I guess he's just got to burn the thing after he's done reading it. So you're selling him a $10 novel, and to obtain physical possession of this book, you're making the guy pay you money, and you're imposing all these liabilities on him. You're saying, if you do blah, 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 if you learn from this book, if you incorporate it, if it ever influences you, if you ever let your cousin borrow it, if you ever have it unintentionally influence you, then you owe me $10 million, right? Because a small amount of damages is not going to do anything to – it's got to be a lot. Now, I think most people would say, I'd rather just pirate it (laughs) or I'd rather just go buy the next guy's book. So I think these contractual schemes are completely unworkable and ridiculous. If someone wants to engage in such a contract, I'm totally in favor of making them suffer the consequences. That's not (laughs) the… That is not our objection to IP law because the people being put in jail now for uploading a Wolverine movie, Kim.com having goons from four countries invade his home in New Zealand is not being penalized because he signed a contract. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid of a, a limited contractual you know, type of system, but I, I don't think anything like IP could be simulated in whatsoever by any kind of private... Contract. Well,
1: the other thing is, I mean, so there's actually no evidence that such a thing existed before the age of copyright, and we have actual historical experience here. I mean, copyright was not global into the late 19th century. Before then, all there are only national laws, and most all over the continent, you didn't see, you didn't see uh, copyright into the late 19th century anyway. Uh, England, yeah, you saw it in, uh, much earlier. But well, you don't see any evidence that, for example, musicians would, uh, or, or th- theaters the theaters or, or uh, symphony halls would, would bind everybody who attended the, the uh, concert to never write it down, which is actually a very serious matter. I mean, it was actually very common for Mozart to attend every concert and go and write the music down after he <laughs> release it. I he mean, commonly did this. Uh, I mean, we, we know this, but it was not a violation of, of any, any known rule at the time. You know, uh, well,
0: w- what I find interesting, and, and Sheldon may find this interesting historically too, um, and this is in and balkerts article, which I'll send you after, and also it's in uh, Boldrin and Levine's book. They talk about – I think there's this rosy notion that authors wanted copyright to control their books and all this. I, my understanding is the reality is the opposite, that you know, the state and the church and the guilds were controlling what books could be printed. So I write a book, and I can't even print my own book. I have to get permission of this group of, you know, of, of censors, and the movement to sell the Statute of Anne in 1710 and the kind of modernization of copyright was to give the authors the copyright instead of the crown. But they wanted the copyright just so they could break free of the restrictions on being able to make their book public. It, it wasn't that they were clamoring for a right to monopolize people. They wanted freedom. People. They wanted to sell – they wanted to publish their works. They didn't want to have the legal right to stop people from doing it. They were trying to break free of the guild system and the state system that had cartelized and monopolized and censored their works up until that point. And, of course, what the publishing industry did, they were very savvy. They stepped back and they let this happen, but then they stepped into the role of the state because as soon as as this happened, the the, the authors still had to turn to a publisher…  … … to get their book published because they didn't have a, a home laser printer, right? And, and so they had to sign their rights away to the publishing guilds again. Right. And it's, it's resulted in the system we have today. I mentioned just last night, just two or three days ago, I was reading about this class-action lawsuit on behalf of romance writers like the Harlequin romance writers. A lot of these authors write a book a week or something. It's incredible. They have these back catalogs. And now with the advent of the Kindle and digital publishing, they're thinking, well, I've got a little following. If I can put my back catalog up on Amazon, maybe I'll make $100,000 a year off this back catalog. But guess what happened? They signed away all their rights to their publisher because they had no choice at the time because the publishing industry had a monopoly on this because of the copyright system. So I don't think it it's for lawyer, It's for authors. It's actually for the publishing. Authors industry. are always shocked to discover this.
1: I dealt with this all the time. I have for many years. Authors call up and say, "Well, I, I wrote a book about ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and it's just sort of vanished. I don't even think anybody read it at the time. You're sort of good at getting books out there. Can you help me get this book out there? And my answer is always, "Again, I wish I could say yes, but I can. I can tell you the answer is no." Well, how is that possible? I've retained the copyright. Yeah, you think you retain the copyright, but actually, if you look at your agreement, your your rights are completely controlled by your publisher. And uh, oh, that can't be. Well, I'll call them Well, Feel free. You know, I give them a heads up. You're wasting your time. And sure enough, they call the publishers. And you know, i, I, I maybe I can think of one or two cases where the publisher
2: you know relented. Is it the case uh, that? Is it the case that there are a whole lot of books that are out of print, but yeah. they're not out of copyright, and tons. there are people who would love to print them? publish them because they're valuable books and yet not only in some cases they don't even know who holds the, or they can't find the copyright holder but they're afraid to yeah, publish orphan it because works. they feel they'll get hit, if you know what is it? Uh, is there Orphan Works, is that what they call Yeah,
1: orphan and Chad have you seen, there's there's actually a lot of empirical research on this, that that there's far more books in print through and sold through Amazon uh, published before 1920 than there are between like uh, 1923 and, and you know 1995 um, there's, a, there's a giant like 70-year hole yeah. in, a, in, our, in our knowledge, actually. Like everything, like most of the work of the 20th century, has just we've been thrown down you know, to mm-hmm. the bottom of the ocean, and, and you can't access it anymore. It's, Google, it's,
0: Google has tried to save, salvage, and recover some of this with their Google print project, and they've gotten threats of lawsuits from the yeah. representatives of non-existent lawyers, it's re- I mean non-existent yeah. authors. It's crazy. It's like you want to stop them from publishing a book whose author we don't know.
1: Well, they will be laughing. A century from now, they will be laughing at us. They'll just be amazed. What what the hell is wrong with these people? They had the tools to, to make all knowledge universally available, and they didn't do it. Let me, I want to back up one, uh,
2: before we leave the, uh, the contract area uh, just to kind of seal this because because like you say Stefan people ask about it you got asked about it last night and I hear about it too uh, you know Rothbard gives the case of uh, you know the contractual copyright and then he and then he uh, you know at least uh, trying to cover all bases he he knew he was going to get hit with what about the third party yeah. right yeah so you, I find a book in the park but there's a C on it stamped uh, you know that was printed on there, which everybody knows means there's one right that's not been included in this bundle, namely yes. the copyright that that stays with somebody else, the author or the publisher. So you're saying there are no good uh, libertarian grounds, libertarian legal grounds for for that. Well, that, that kind of that something that would, that sort of thing that would
0: uh, obligate a finder. so uh, the most generous charitable reading of that, I think, is as follows. First of all, you have to have a coherent theory of contract, which Rothbard actually worked on. I think that's one of his most neglected and most powerful theories. So the best argument you could make is that when you find an object that is apparently not abandoned and owned by someone, you don't know who the owner is… If there's some indication of the owner's desires about how it be used, that if you use that device in a way that's contrary to the owner's wishes, then you're using a piece of property you don't own without the consent of the owner. I think you could own that, but to extend that to say, well, first of all, the example Rothbard gives is a mousetrap, not a book. So he's using a (laughs) mousetrap, which is an invention, in a copyright case, which is confusing because if you have a new mousetrap… What are you going to do with it? You're going to sell it, so it's going to be on the shelves of millions of stores around the country, and presumably the features will be emblazoned upon the packaging. This new mousetrap has the following features. That's why it's better than our competitors. So you're actually publicizing to everyone far and wide. It's going to be in magazine articles. I might read about the mousetrap in a magazine article. I might never actually physically hold that mousetrap, so this bundle of rights idea, I can't see how it could even conceivably… Apply to people who happen to get information by observation, or even by handling. Even if you pick up a, an abandoned mousetrap trap in the in, in a park, <laughs> well, first of all, the park is presumably private, and there's rules of the owner about what you do with abandoned property. But let's 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 forget that for a second. <laughs> but if I pick up a mousetrap trap that someone negligently left there, they're basically littering. I mean, I would blame the owner more than the finder. There's a mousetrap trap that I'm going to step on. It's going to hit my foot if I don't pick it up. I pick up this mousetrap. I observe it. I wonder what the hell is going on. Why is there a brand-new mousetrap in the middle of the woods? And I happen to observe, hey, it's got this new kind of spring feature, so I've just learned something. And then I realize, oh, this is owned by Acme Corporation, so maybe I'm a good Samaritan, and I call up Acme Corporation, and I say, I just found your mousetrap. What do you want me to do with it? They say, well, mail it to us. We'll we'll send you the postage and handling. Fine. And then they say, and forget what you saw. (laughs) I'm like, well, I can't forget what I saw. <laughs> Why would I forget what I saw? Now I know that I can make a mousetrap that has this kind of spring system that's an improvement. Why wouldn't I use that information? I didn't commit any kind of trespass to get the information.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that Rothbard's attempt to with this bundle of right thing just makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, what if the copyright page of a book is ripped out by the previous owner? <laughs> I, I just don't think you can assume that picking up an object means you're bound this is like shrink wrap and and uh, and and, and uh, click wrap that we have nowadays, which I'm also skeptical of just because I click on this terms of service on a website just to get past the, the the stupid fine print to get to a picture I want to see or whatever. I don't think it means i have I'm literally bound by everything in the fine print What, what if there's something uh, non good faith buried in the fine print what if what if the fine print has buried somewhere? … and you agree to give me your house in two years. I mean, should that be enforceable? It's ridiculous. People have a tendency to over-legalize things, and they want to equate a piece of paper with the contract. To my mind, the piece of paper is just evidence of what the contract is. The contract is really the understanding between the parties.
2: Yeah, I was going to okay. say is meeting of is, the minds exactly. is considered I, a, a
0: core element. Yeah. Yeah, and good faith should be a a core element of interpreting terms in these contracts, and if it's not reasonable, if one side knows, the other side never did read these terms, if I pick up a book and on page 12 inside there's some bizarre copyright notice and I never even read it, why am I bound by that? It's not some magical incantation, so I'm totally uh, – I think there's almost nothing to this contract copyright theory that, that's my take on it sorry
2: yeah the shrink wrap is even more absurd because you had to get into the shrink wrap to even see it yeah the fine print assuming you read it but then later they invoke they would invoke it and say well the second package you bought with shrink wrap you knew from the first package but it was illegitimate with the first package <laughs> why yeah, am I bound by the uh, Shrink wrap in the it's, second
0: package. It's it's shrink wrap all the way down. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And you know, there's the great uh, line by uh, by uh, Bill Gates that if uh, in the early days there had been all these these uh, co- these uh, licenses and copyrights and patents on software, we wouldn't have a software industry. Yeah. So he, he basically, he concedes that all that. Uh, well, thanks for clarifying the uh, the Rothbard thing because I uh, you do hear about it and and there seems to be for libertarians this intuitive appeal that if I. If I find a book in a trash can, that's okay, we, can, we now know it's really been abandoned it's in a trash can, and I see a C on it in a circle, that means I'm barred
0: by, from doing something. With that. But it's, it's, such, it's such a weird hypo because we're in the 21st century now. I mean, basically, physical books and trash cans are, are a thing of the past. <laughs> right? Books are just ideal objects spread by data patterns on torrent sites. So how do they apply their model to digital information on the Internet? Yeah. You know, this, Is the Pirate Bay making me sign the terms of service saying I agree to this bizarre copyright regime before I download a file of information? So are you of
2: oh. uh, the view that this is all going to become moot because it's just going to become unenforceable? I mean it's already largely unenforceable.
0: Copyright, I think, is becoming more and more unenforceable because of BitTorrent encryption. Um, and in the patent field, 3D printing itself could be one thing that is going to make patent more unenforceable as a practical measure. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and I also think I mean, I look at it as a curve. Like, there's always an increased attempt by the state to ratchet up power. I think the, in- the rate of increase is slowing down because other nations are getting more and more reluctant to accept our arm twisting and to adopt American style. IP standards, but I don't see it going down. But I think the rate of increase may be slowing. Okay. Anyway, J- Jeff, That's anything? Any final thoughts to add? Um, well, there's unlimited amounts
1: of thoughts. So let me just say one last thing on this copyright uh, contract thing. The the whole idea presumes that ideas can be sort of sort of packaged and bought and sold. Uh, commodified the same way as physical property. It's not really true. I mean, when I read a novel, I'm permanently affected by it. The, the plot, the drama, the characters, uh, the story—it becomes part of my story. You know, uh, am I going to be using that in my in my life going forward? So, certainly, I will. Uh, will. Will I do it with deliberation? Will I always know precisely where every idea I have in my head came from? Like, be able to. Sort of um, reverse engineer everything I believe and assign it backwards in time to owners. Of course not. That's not the way ideas work. So yeah, I think the copyright uh, contract idea—it just gets the whole idea, the whole notion of what ideas are wrong. And that's not the way ideas work. Ideas are, 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 a, are, a, are a sandstorm. You know, you can't you can't really always make sense of where they where they came from. So anyway, I agree. I, I agree, I agree that. with that. Yeah.
2: I think that's a great way to look at it.
1: Thank you, Sheldon, for coming. And thank you, uh, Stefan, for, for having
0: a rare, us. A rare treat. Yeah, thanks, thanks for what you've done. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, um, well, same,
2: back right back at you, both of you.
0: <laughs> Enjoy it. Let's keep
2: doing it. Let's keep thanks. doing it. Me too. Right. Okay. Thanks. Thanks,
0: guys. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye.